Once again, I believe it's safe to say this. Without my making too much of my statement, I believe we are at the most critical juncture in all human history when Jesus enters Gethsemane. This is the fulcrum, the pivot point. And the entire issue, the entire burden, the entire purpose of God rests in just one of two words. Everything rests upon just one of two words. Everything rests upon just one of two words. Will Jesus say yes, or will Jesus say no? It's that simple. Everything boils down to just one of two words for man's relationship and walk with God. Everything. This is not a complicated issue. God has made it absolutely simple and has given us the power of his spirit to accomplish the decision that he requires. So we're going to continue today and continue next week in Gethsemane. Why? Because I cannot get beyond the fact that all of human obedience or disobedience All of it is gathered up into this one time, in this one man, in the fact that he will either say yes or no. Everything is gathered up into this point. In these hours in Gethsemane, three hours essentially, more than that maybe, but at least three, absolutely the most titanic cosmic battle of all time. The battle is not at the cross. The battle is for man's obedience. That's the battle. Isn't that the battle in my life and in your life? Yes or no? Yes. Always. One issue. When I say yes to God, Or will I say no to God and yes to me? Everything, everything is gathered up into this one issue. And we must see that as this one man enters this garden that evening, knowing full well what was ahead of him. I'm jumping ahead, but you'll just have to give me a little grace on this. All... I believe, of the angels of God are looking on with bated breath because they don't know what's going to happen. They're not God. They don't know 
what's going to happen, James? Why do I say that? Because they remember some time previous to this, another man was in another garden faced with a minuscule decision, a minuscule, little bitty decision. Don't eat of the fruit. And that man said, I will not obey. And there is another group of angels looking on at this one man. Those who have been consigned to the cauldron of hell itself. And they're looking on as their master Satan literally, I think, licks his lips in hopeful anticipation that as the first Adam said no, this Adam will also say no. All of creation, all of God's purpose, all of eternity, all of time comes down to this one decision. As in the first garden, one man, one time, committed one sin, everything was lost. In this second garden, one man, one time, if you would, collecting it, all of it into one, one it all back for the purposes of God. Amen? Let's make sure we see Gethsemane much larger than we ever have seen it before so that when we hear the word Gethsemane, we like, oh, 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 we shudder with Awe and reverence. We shudder with awe and reverence. So this morning, let's look at verse 36 of Matthew 25. I mean, what, what, what chapter are we in? Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them, the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and I pray. Now, we're not going to put all the Gospels together, you know, the harmony of the Gospels to get it all. We're not going to do that. But what I want to emphasize, at least at this point as we move forward, is Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, Because Luke throws in a phrase here that Matthew, John, and Mark do not have. And it's interesting as we read the four Gospels how God will give one writer a particular phrase or an activity that the others don't have. And as we put all of these together, like putting pieces of a puzzle together, we get the full picture. And so Luke says, Jesus, you know, goes into the garden as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. So what is Luke doing? He's reminding himself that this is not the first time that Jesus has come, gone into the Mount of Olives. And it's not the first time that he's, when he goes into the Mount of Olives, that he goes to Gethsemane. It's not the first time. Remember, the Mount of Olives is that olive grove, if you would, outside of Jerusalem. Those wonderful old, old, old trees. These things are older than I am. And if you can believe it, even older than Brenda Tullis. These are old trees, old, old trees. Man, 
You see, Anna is saying, well, at least he let me off the hook. <laughs> Anna was there when Brenda was born. So, you know, just old, old, old trees. And Faye just sitting back there saying, I hope he doesn't see me. Old trees. And this is a big garden. I've got to get through this today. And in the garden, on the Mount of Olives, it's called a garden. Actually, the Bible doesn't call it a garden. Isn't that interesting? I don't think it does, if I can remember. Could be wrong. On the Mount of Olives, there is a location way over here, way over here, over here, that is somewhat of a cave kind of a thing. And in the cave, there is a, a press. It's kind of a big old bowl-looking thing made out of whatever, I don't know, concrete or whatever it was. And all the olives that were collected were thrown into this, and a very big, heavy wheel was rolled around on top of these things, crushing them, squeezing out all the olive oil. It's an olive press. It's an olive press. That's what it is. The word Gethsemane means olive press. This is where Jesus goes. He goes over there. And he's done that before. Listen to this in Luke 21:37, talking about Jesus. Remember Jesus, for, Jesus last week in Jerusalem. He's in and out, ministering during the day, going to pray at night, etc. Luke 21:37. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. But he goes to a particular place when he goes to the Mount of Olives. He's going into this kind of cave thing. Now, Luke emphasizes this because he knows and he wants us to know that Judas would have known where Jesus was. Because Jesus, Judas and the disciples, they've been here before. And so when Judas is going to lead the band of soldiers and priests and so on to find Jesus, he knows where to go. How do you know where he is? Because we go there all the time. This is a common place that when Jesus is in Jerusalem, he goes to when he prays. We've been there before. You see, one other indication. This is the predetermined, predestined plan of God. Jesus is in full, complete, comprehensive control of what's happening. This is the predestined plan of God. Don't you love the word predestined? Many people, I don't like that word. Well, you better like that word because the word predestination is the way God achieves his eternal purpose. That's what predestination means. This is the way God achieves his eternal plan. So make sure you don't dislike the word predestination. It was predestined that Jesus do this. And so what is happening is this. Get the view. Get the view. 
Jesus enters Gethsemane. He goes to the wine press. And he knows that when he goes to the wine press, just like the olives that would be crushed, he himself would be crushed. Remember what Isaiah says in 53? He was what? Crushed for our iniquities. So why does he go to Gethsemane? He goes there purposefully to show us something about what he is going through, what he already knows he's going to go through, and is anticipating and is prepared to do for his Father's will. He's going to be crushed as the olives are also crushed, and the life's blood, if you would, would be squeezed out of him at the cross. Gethsemane. It means something in just another place. But when the Son of God enters that Gethsemane, I'll call it the garden. I'm used to it. Garden of Gethsemane. Is that right, Phil? You know, we'll say it all the time. When he enters this second garden, he does so. I like this thought. The Lord gave me this thought, so I think it's okay. I think it's God who gave it to me. Jesus does so, luring his enemies into his trap. Can you say amen? Amen. Jesus always lures his enemy into his trap. Gotcha. Doesn't somebody say somewhere in a letter to someone, if the rulers of this world had known... They would not have what? Crucified the Lord of glory. Did we not hear that just a few weeks ago in some letter that is being talked about on Sunday morning? Jesus entered the Mount of Olives under the direction of the Holy Spirit as he had entered the wilderness under the leading of the Spirit. Remember in Matthew 4 or Luke 4. Jesus is being led by the Spirit. And he's being led by the Spirit, knowingly led, knowing what would happen. Jesus entered the Mount of Olives and went to the same location, knowing that Judas would find him for his eventual arrest and crucifixion. He knows this. Please, let's get this understanding that faith in God knows something. It may or may not know the particulars In fact, the fact is Jesus does know the particulars, but faith doesn't demand particulars. Faith demands trusting and obeying the will of God. In spite of these circumstances and particulars, too many believers say, that can't be God because, and they list all these difficulties and problems. That can't be God. Are you kidding? In fact, if there are a lot of difficulties, it might be more obvious that it's the will of God for you. I don't know. Jesus, I mean, this is important to remember, that Jesus knowingly does this. It's important to remember this when we come to the prayer of Jesus, because what we don't want to do is forget who Jesus is and what he already knows as he begins to pray. And we'll probably talk, I think, about that prayer next week. He comes to a place of Gethsemane, as I said, the olive press. I think I jumped ahead on this one a little bit in your notes. So if you're following me, okay, yes. So he already knows that he, like the olives, will be crushed. 
Remember Isaiah 53, 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. Knowing all of this, why does Jesus enter the Mount of Olives? Why does he do that? For very one simple reason. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. This is the reason Jesus does it. He simply is here to obey God. He, his life is a yes to God's will. His whole life and everything about this man is a resounding and continual and perfect yes to God. Here is the last Adam entering into the garden to undo what the first Adam did in the first garden. And, you know, all of the effects of Adam's disobedience can only become overcome one way. What is the only way Adam's disobedience can be overcome? What way? Through obedience. Obedience. Through one word. Everything in my life, everything in your life boils down to one of two words. So let's not live complicated spiritual lives. Either our life is going to say yes or is going to say no in the various activities and opportunities of life. Either we're going to be like the Apostle Peter, I'll never deny you and do it by saying no, or we're going to be walking in the good and in the power of the Son of God who always says yes. Jesus had to obediently enter the garden as our representative. Why is that important? Because you see, when Jesus enters the garden, where were we? Where were we when Jesus enters the garden to fight the titanic battle of his will? Of, according to his human nature. Where, is, where are we when Jesus enters this garden? Where are we? In Christ. What's the verse for that? Yeah, but what, what, else, what says specifically in Christ? Where were we? What is that verse? Got to get these verses. Galatians 2.20. I have been... And when Paul says that, he includes everyone who is in Christ. I have been what? Crucified with, in union with, in association with, in fellowship with, included into Christ. And so Paul isn't saying, well, I'm in Christ just when he's crucified. But the moment Jesus is born all the way through, the moment he dies and rises and ascends into the heaven, where were we? We were in him by the declaration of God before the foundation of the world, correct? Our total understanding and reason that we are people of God today is because of our position in Christ according to the eternal predetermined plan of God to be in Christ. Therefore, we are saved today. Do you see that? So when Jesus enters and has this and, and, and uh, faces this battle. He's facing it for us and on behalf of us. So he is our representative. We are in him. He represents us. And so as God 
sees and witnesses and experiences and watches his own son obey his will in the garden, whom does God also see? Us. Can you get it? Mary, do you have that? He sees us. He sees us in Christ. Do, do, we, do we get this this morning? This should be big, our union with Christ. So God is not just looking at a man. He is looking at all of his people in this man. Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were sinners. So also by one man's obedience, the many will become righteous or be made righteous. How was one man's disobedience our disobedience? And how was Christ's obedience our disobedience? Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive. And how many of us, when Jesus was physically in a time frame in the garden, what, 2,000 whatever years ago, how many of us at that point had literally committed sin? How many of us had literally committed sin yet? None of us. Why, Lord? You haven't been born yet. So you see, it's not a matter of what you have done or what you have not done. It's a matter of who you are to God in the essence of his purpose and fellowship and relationship with you. The issue with God essentially as to fellowship has never been essentially our obedience. Why, Kit? It cannot be. We would never be in fellowship if even one set of of obedience were required. Not even one. Why? Because we cannot do even one act of obedience apart from the flesh being encompassed by sin. Not even one. Not even one. So the issue with God has never been, nor it ever will be, that we are saved having to do with something of or about us. It's all about Christ and our identity having been included in him before the foundation of the world by the predetermined plan and purpose of God the Father. This is what it's about. So what does that do? You see, it doesn't free me from having to obey. It frees me from having to disobey in order to obey. We talk about freedom in Christ. For It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that's one of Frank's favorite verses, and it should be. Somebody said it to somebody at some time ago, right, Frank? But what is the freedom about? It is the freedom from having to sin. Did you notice how I said it, Chris? It is the freedom from having to sin. We could not but sin before Christ. It is the freedom from having to sin in order to have the freedom to now not to sin. That's our freedom. Right, Corey? Our freedom now is from the dominating, empowering, 
clutch of sinning to being able to obey the voice of God our Father. That's our freedom. It's not a freedom to do what you want to do and not do what you don't want to do and all. It has nothing to do with me or my personality and my preferences. It has everything to do with the accomplishment of God's will in my life. Too many believers say, well, I'm free to do this and that. To me, that is high idolatry and poo-pooing on God. Please never say to me, I'm free to do. I am free to hear, to know, to understand, and to do God's will. It's not about me. I'm free to go here or there. I'm free. To me, that's trash. In Christ, understanding it, we can say that. But typically when it's said, we're saying it in order to justify something that we hope to God that it's okay. You know, man, some kind of way I hope God blesses it. Jesus enters the garden bearing the full weight of his role as the son of man. As he enters the garden, he hears these words from Isaiah 4 through 8 ringing in his heart. As he enters the garden, he hears the words of Isaiah 53, 4 through 8. That he would be the obedient substitute and this is what he's going to have to experience. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He knows this is about him. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed. Remember Gethsemane. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, knowing this, why did Jesus enter the garden? Because he knew it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He knew it. Knowing this, he purposely sets his face toward Gethsemane. Knowing this, how was Jesus able to enter the garden for the greatest temptation battle of life? How could he do it? How could he do it? You have to remember this. <clears throat> the Son of God has taken to himself a human body, soul, a human body and soul, mind. And so as to his humanity, as to the Son's humanity, as the son of man, Jesus has the same sinless weaknesses that all of us do. 
He has the same desires without sin that all of us do. Desire to eat, desire to sleep, desire not to be killed. You know, he, he, he's a human being. We forget this. This is a man. This is a man. He's a human being. It's the Son of God, but we're talking about as to his humanity. In this person of Jesus Christ dwells the, the, uh, the nature of the Son of God, the divine nature, and the human nature, both of them dwelling together in unity, but being separate without any confusion or intermixture. How does this work? I don't know. And so as to his humanity, Jesus is entering the garden. And he has to enter it as we have to enter every aspect and opportunity and event of our life. How does he do it? He has to enter by faith. By faith, trusting and obeying God's will and purpose, being led by the Spirit. How does Jesus enter the garden? He enters by faith. And as we're going to find out... This man enters trembling. He's trembling. He's afraid. This man enters terror stricken. This man enters the garden horrified. At what's ahead of him. He doesn't enter the garden as you see in these frou-frou movies about come on in and I'm going to be here and we go. That's not what's happening here. Here is a man who is already, even at the meal that he has been sharing with his disciples, already experiencing the crushing of God. He's already beginning to experience this as a human being, understanding not more fully, but understanding that immediately now this is going to happen. How many of us know that there may be some difficulty in life that's coming, but five years from now, we know about it, but what? The closer and closer we get to it, how do we begin to feel? Come on, how do you begin to feel? Uh-oh, more and more dread, right? Five, I know in five years this is going to happen. My bills are coming due. I'm going to have to pay off my house. I don't have the money. But you know, I know that. But the closer I get to it, the more the dread, right? Are you with me on this? This is what's happening to him. It doesn't just suddenly dawn on him. Wow, I didn't know what. He knows this. And as he coming toward it, it's getting larger and larger as far as dread is concerned. This man is filled with dread. With dread. How does he enter? By faith, trusting and obeying God's will. We must always remember Jesus was a genuine man with genuine human limitations and non-sin weaknesses. Don't get that out of your mind. Let's make him absolutely, completely a human being and absolutely and completely divine in one person. And in this man, as he is experiencing dread and terror and horror at what's going to happen, oh my God, this is... The Son of God, the divine nature, is experiencing what Jesus, the human nature, is experiencing. 
And so God experiences everything about us in his son. This means that the eternal son of God took our humanity to himself. Remember John 1, 14? Somebody remember what that verse says, John 1, 14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember these verses. Remember them. And as a human being, Jesus had to live by faith in the very same way that we are to live by faith. Jesus' faith in God, Jesus' faith in the Scriptures, Jesus' faith, submission, etc., by the Spirit, is on our behalf and for us so that we are freed from sin's domination and control and have been set free to live by faith the same way Jesus lived by faith under the leadership of the very same Holy Spirit. So when we look at the life of Jesus and how Jesus, this man, entered the garden, we are to see how we are to enter every aspect of life. Correct? This is not just Jesus. This is him doing it for us and on behalf of us so that in him, by the Spirit, we might also live the same way. Yes. We are to walk as he walked, First John says. This means that for Jesus, Jesus had to live by faith to be our faithful high priest. This is the way that his death and resurrection would be righteousness unto us. Why? Why? Such faith. Why does Jesus do this? Yeah. Jesus is the perfect man, the perfect human being, but he's not living according to natural human abilities. If anybody can, he what? He what? He could. If anybody could, Frank what? He could, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Why is faith necessary? Because you see, faith is supernatural and not natural. God gives us faith not to empower our natural abilities to obey. He gives us faith setting aside our natural obedience in preference for supernatural obedience. Can you say amen? He sets aside. He's not improving us. He's displacing our flesh and natural creation as creatures for the activity and the display of him being the image of the invisible God. Remember Colossians 1.15. So why faith is necessary? It is not of the natural creation. It's always of the divine nature. This faith is always and only of the divine nature. It is absolutely untainted whatsoever and forever of any aspect whatever of the natural creation. has nothing to do with the natural creation. That's what is given to us. So let's be careful when we look at Jesus, when we look at our lives. 
God is not giving us grace and faith, etc., just to boast to us and to help us along. He's giving it to us to displace, to be instead of our natural creaturely decisions in preference for his divine, empowered decision. Hebrews eleven six, and what does it say? Well, without faith, it is impossible to believe God. Why? Because, you see, faith is God's work displaying his nature and character. Faith is 100% of God, for God, and about God. That's what's given us in our ability to be saved. And that's what keeps us saved throughout our life to the very end. Such faith has as its object God himself because it's the activity of his divine power. What does Jesus say in Acts 1-8? Wait in Jerusalem and what? Receive power when that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. So you have to receive my power to live by faith. I have to give it to you as a, as a gift. Jesus entered the garden in divine faith, not human faith. I hope this clarifies for us. Because if we're not careful, we think Jesus is just kind of a superman coming in here. Jesus is utterly the most dependent man on earth. (laughs) Right, Chris? He is utterly the most dependent man on earth. And yet, listen to me, yet how many of us don't like someone to help us or don't like it when we need to admit we need someone else's help. Come on, come on, come on. And yet here's the Son of God, utterly, absolutely, completely dependent upon someone else. And aren't we the same way? Is there anyone in here that you could truthfully and faithfully say you're not a dependent person? So let me prove that in one way. How many of you were active in your own birth? In your own conception? Well, there that goes. That, the whole argument then. We enter as dependent. We enter. And so you see our faith, the faith that God gives to us becomes my faith because it's mine from God and is operative in God and by God through me. And so my faith, if you would, is now the revelation of my absolute, complete dependence upon God as specially and perfectly displayed in the Son of God. And that kind of faith alone honors and displays the glory of our great God. That's how to be an image bearer for God. God's image bearer, rather. Jesus enters the garden imbued with the divine gift of faith by the Spirit. He enters the garden as a man, totally dependent upon the promises of God. Where? Where are the promises? Where? In the Scriptures, as revealed to his heart and mind by the Spirit. He enters the garden determined to do one thing, to obey God. We enter life having several determinations. I'm determined to know what this, what that, why that, and all the other. If we will, by faith, begin to make our determination one determination, I'm going to obey God. 
I think what that does is clear the decks of a lot of confusion and clutter in my life so that I can begin to understand why, what, when, and how. Because what we've done with why, what, when, and how is to put these issues in front of our decision to say yes as an avenue or a determination whether or not to say yes. I think I'm the only one who's done this. Am I? We do this. Jesus enters the garden determined to do the will of God at all costs. One of the constant reframes I hear in my office when people are having real struggles. You know, I've never struggled with sin. Never have. I struggle with saying yes to God or yes to sin. Amen? Liz, you ever struggle with sin? No, you struggle with your decision. Do you see how it is? Let's not put it on sin. Let's put it where? Oh, I'm struggling with sin. I'm tru- No, you're not. You're struggling with whether to say yes or no. It's hard. It's so hard, Brenda. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with, does God deserve a yes from me? Don't let the hardness and the difficulty and the struggle dissuade you. The Son of God is going to go through the greatest struggle and, if you would, hardness of any man at any time, even all humanity collectively. And he's done it for us. And now he can continue to do it in and through us on a regular basis. You see, in this way, Jesus was able to undo all the effects of Adam's refusal to have faith. Only in this way could the eternal Son experience our human non-sin weaknesses in order to be our divine human representative who is our substitute in Gethsemane and at the cross. This means that Jesus decided by faith decided by faith to face and overcome the greatest ordeal of his life at the highest cost to his humanity, unlike Adam who refused to decide by faith to obey God. Amen. Next week, we'll continue with Gethsemane.